The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Our Father in heaven, now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would speak to us through this word. It's written down that even the Old Testament, these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So please let this truly be instruction for this church. Apply these things to our hearts and our minds. Let us see the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus. And please give us grace to walk these things out in our lives. Pray all this in his name. Amen. So we've seen as we've gone through these first books of the Bible that from the first pages of Scripture, God promised mankind a son born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent who had brought evil into the world in Eden. And over the first books of the Bible, this promise of a son is progressively revealed by further steps. It's further fleshed out what we should expect of this son. Scripture gives us more details, what he'll be like, what he'll do, what offices he'll fill, what he will come to do, and even how he's going to accomplish it. We've seen the Lord prove himself faithful to his promise every step of the way. He brings an initial fulfillment to his work by progressive stages to show that he's faithful, that he's not just telling them a bare word, but he means what he says, and he will bring it to pass. And yet we've seen that the full advantage of his promise is yet to be fulfilled. We've seen Israel grow from just Abraham to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And yet, not all of Israel has the faith of Abraham. We've seen Israel promise the land of Canaan. And then last week in Joshua, we saw that they took the land of Canaan. And the book of Joshua says, they went in and took it and they found rest. And yet that book also makes clear this is not their final rest. They've not succeeded in subduing the whole land. The Lord tells Joshua in chapter 13, when he is very old, that there is yet very much land to possess. There's much work yet to be done there. Other verses tell about all the enemies that yet remain and land yet to be conquered. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 4.8 says, If Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken about another day later on. And besides all the enemies remaining outside of Israel, we have seen over and over this evil within Israel itself, rearing its ugly head over and over again. Even in the best of the leaders, Moses sinned, Joshua sinned, Aaron sinned. And Israel keeps making these new promises. They make new covenants. They renew the covenant over and over. We're going to obey this time. The Lord is our God. We're going to obey him. And every time they do that, soon there is a, another fall from that. They break their promise. But the Lord does not break his promises. He continues to further advance his cause to keep this promise of a son in order that his name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. The book of Judges picks up right where Joshua left off, telling the history of Israel. 
Joshua dies, and the people ask, who's going to go up for us now? Joshua, our leader, is dead. Who will go up for us? And the Lord answers, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. And that's not a random choice. If you remember from back in Genesis, Jacob prophesied that the scepter would not depart from Judah. There would be a lion of the tribe of Judah. This is foretelling the coming of Christ. Judah is going to lead them into battle because the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. It's from Judah that their king will come. So Judah goes up first. Judah defeats the Perizzites and the Canaanites in his territory. They kill 10,000 men. They cut off the thumb and the big toes of one of the kings. They take Jerusalem. They kill Shishai, Ahiman, Talmai. They utterly destroy Zephath. Judges 1.19 sums it up. So the Lord was with Judah. They were conquering. Things seem to be going well. But there's also this tension. They're unable to drive out those in the lowlands who have chariots of iron. Benjamin does not drive out the Jebusites who live in Jerusalem, and so it says they live among them to this day. They take Bethel, but then verse 27 says, Manasseh did not drive out the Canaanites in certain regions, for they were determined to dwell there. And so Israel does not completely drive them out. And the rest of that chapter tells of more land from which they were unable to drive the Canaanites. All of this is foreshadowing of trouble. We see some success, but there's also some signs of trouble here. Deuteronomy 7.16 had said, You shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. That's a recurring word in these warnings. They'll be a snare to you. Exodus 34.12 says, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. There's warning of if they leave these other nations in the land, these nations are going to seduce them to come and bow down to their gods. And so they are to wipe the face of the earth. Wipe them from the face of the earth, essentially. Uh, Israel has not succeeded in driving out all the people. They made a covenant with some deceitful Gibeonites in Joshua. They do not drive some of the Canaanites out, but they only put them under tribute. So they have not fully obeyed the Lord. And the Lord says in, Judge, in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And the people at this, they lift up their voices and they weep. So Israel has not been zealous to do all that the Lord commanded them. It seems they've taken it too easy on these nations. They've not been willing to break down their altars and utterly destroy them. It seems that the Canaanites were more determined to stay in the land than Israel was to take the land from them. 
They were to save alive nothing that breathes in those cities that the Lord gave them. That's what the Lord commanded. But the Lord says here, they have not obeyed his voice. And so as we move forward in Scripture, we'll see that these wicked people will indeed be snares to them. They will be a trap to them. They will seduce them to follow after their gods. They have to wonder, this seems severe, to cast down their altars, break down their altars, go in, leave nothing breathing. I'm sure it seems severe to Israel also. You have to wonder if part of Israel's motive in keeping them alive, saving some people alive, was what they thought was mercy. We're being merciful to them. But the good and merciful God who called them out of Egypt commanded them to do it. And they should have believed him and obeyed, but they do not. We can learn from this that you should never think you're wiser than God. If God commands something, we should do it. If God commands you to do something, it is loving. Love is the fulfilling of the law, filling the commandments. And yet there's no getting around here that God commanded Israel to utterly destroy the Canaanites. They were to break down their altars, and they have not. And we're not living in that time. We're not living under the old covenant. But these things were still written for our instruction. We can apply this to spiritual evil in our time. We should be zealous to leave alive nothing evil that breathes. We should utterly destroy all sin in our lives, in our own hearts. Show no mercy. Leave no sin breathing in your heart. We should leave no quarter to the slightest little evil in our own hearts. And further, we should tolerate no public, unrepentant, open sin in the church. We need to speak the truth in love. Call one another to repentance when there is sin, an open sin in the church. If we consistently fail to root out evil, it will come back to bite us, just as it does Israel here in this book. Once Joshua dies, a new generation comes up. And Judges 2.11 says, Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. They forsake the Lord and bow down to other gods and serve them. In other words, what Moses had predicted in Deuteronomy, what Joshua had predicted at the end of Joshua last week, they come about. These other nations do indeed prove to be a snare to them, and they bow down to their gods. The Lord turns against them for calamity. He opposes them. Just as he had done good to them, so he does bad to them now. Just as he had said. Just as the curses of Deuteronomy had said. And yet, the Lord does not utterly forsake Israel. He does not totally cast them off as a people. God remains true to his word even when Israel does not. Church, we should know God's word well. We should know God's promises so that when hard times come, we can rest knowing that God always is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not change. If he says something in his word, he is going to do it. 
especially when times are hard. We need to remember those promises. Go to those promises when times are hard. Know those promises. Scripture says He's given us His Son. And what more could we ask from Him? He's our good Father. If He did not keep His Son from us, what good thing would He keep from us? He turns evil for good. He disciplines us for our good when there's hardship in our lives. Now I can tell you there's been a lot of times in my walk with Christ where I've wanted to give up. A lot of times. There's times when the Christian life seems too much to bear. It's hard to believe God. It's hard to believe His promises that He's working for your good. You think God calls you to something and then there are obstacles You might say there's Canaanites in the land to oppose you. Canaanites in your own heart to oppose you. Evil desires. Satan, the flesh. You must leave no doubt about who God is in your heart, or you will fall. I graduated with 60 kids from my high school class. It was a very small school. I went to Stevens Point for college, and I thought that was the big city. I didn't like the city. I hated the city. I uh, went to work in the wilderness in Maine, uh, doing forestry work. After that, I spent time working in the wilderness in Montana where there was no cell service. I didn't have a cell phone, and I liked it that way. (laughs) I was happy there um, in Montana. But yet, somehow, God pulled me back to the Midwest to go to seminary in Minneapolis, which has been the epicenter of the craziness from the cities lately. I didn't know how to drive in the city. There's there's those metered on-ramps, and I didn't know what to do with those. I'm like, why are these yellow lights flashing at me? I don't know what to do. Um, I didn't know how to drive. People were honking their horns at me. I didn't want to be in the city, but there I was, and I was door knocking these doors in the hood basically in Minneapolis cold calling show up at the doors hey I'm from the gas company you let me in to your basement (laughs) tough sell I'm surprised people let me in but that's what I was doing fresh out of Montana I had a lot of dark days there were even some dark years I would say I was living in a lake cabin on the shore of the lake Um, which sounds pretty nice, but uh, it was not uh, winterized, really. Just enough. Uh, There was no basement, so the floor was very cold. The walls were paper thin, and there was one heater, which I would sit next to so it could blow warm air on me. But my feet would get so cold at night that I found that (laughs) it would take several hours for them to warm up enough in my bed so that I could fall asleep. So I had to go stick my feet in the sink in the bathroom and put hot water on them and warm them up so that when I went to bed, I was comfortable enough that I'd be able to fall asleep. I got cold feet, but... (laughs) Those were some hard times. You hold on to who God is. You hold on to what God has commanded in His Word, what He's told His church to do. You hold on to what you believe God has called you to do, what you've heard other believers say. Look, you're gifted to do this. Keep going on, even if it's hard. Keep doing it. Keep at it. 
You pray. You hold on to that encouragement from other believers in your life. You believe God. And that's really the only way out of hard situations. That's the only way out of this life. You enjoy those good things. You believe God. You hold on to those promises. You slay sin and doubt. Don't leave any of those things breathing. But we see that Israel here, on the whole, as a nation, they've not done that. And so we've seen that they've fallen under the curse of the law as a nation. But the Lord does not completely forsake them. They call out for help, and he sends them a deliverer. And this is a repeated pattern throughout Judges. There's rise and fall, peaks and valleys. They fall into sin, as we've seen they already have. They're oppressed by their enemies, similar to how they were oppressed in Egypt. They cry out for help, and the Lord sends them a judge or a deliverer to save them. And as long as that judge is alive, he delivers them. They're saved. They do well. They enjoy rest from their enemies. But once he dies, they sin again, and the process repeats again. There's this cycle over and over and over and over again. Sin. They call out for help. God raises up a deliverer, a judge. He saves them from their enemies. Once he dies, they go fall right back into their sin, over and over and over. I want to point out that the word translated deliverer might be better translated savior. These are saviors that God raises up. This repeated process of Raising up saviors. They're okay as, as long as he's alive, but once he dies, they fall back into sin again. It should start to get you thinking. What do they need here? What's required for them not to keep going through this cycle? If every time the savior dies, they run into trouble, what do they need? They need a savior who always lives, who never dies, who goes on living forever. This book of Judges is raising up an expectation of a judge like that. A savior who will be a savior once and for all. So there's this pattern of rise and fall, death and resurrection, you might say. And Israel relies on these judges to save them. And the Lord is continuing to be faithful to his promise. He raises up deliverers for them and does not utterly forsake them. So there's Othniel, there's Ehud, Shamgar. Then Deborah, the prophetess. Now the narrative there says her husband came to her and he pleads with Deborah, the prophetess, please go up with me. I know I'm supposed to go up and do this. The Lord has commanded it. Unless you go with me, I'm not going to go up. And Deborah tells her husband, I will go up with you, but this will not be for your glory. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so the wife of Heber must drive a tent pig through the skull of Sisera, the enemy king, instead of Barak, Deborah's husband. Now, good for Deborah for being willing to do this. Good for the wife of Heber for being willing to strike down Sisera, this evil king. But this is not the way it should be. It's a sign of judgment on the land. We have women needing to go out and fight these battles that the men are supposed to be fighting. And that's not a sign of God's blessing. Remember that this is the book of Judges. 
This is not a high time in Israel. This is a time of spiritual low ebb. It's not a sign of God's blessing when women are put on the front lines in the field of battle. It's not a sign of God's blessing when we see women begin to fill the pulpits in churches, what call themselves churches, when they fill pulpits, they fill pastorates. What we see in Israel is that somebody desperately needed to take the lead. And we desperately need qualified men to take the lead in the church today. Now the next judge is Gideon. We see about Gideon, he wasn't strong and courageous in himself. When we first see Gideon, I've talked about this before, he's threshing wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. He's not exactly taking the banner and going and saying, let's charge, let's go get him. He's hiding from them. And it's almost humorous, the angel of the Lord hails him. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor, hiding from your enemies in the wine press. Perhaps the Lord is looking on the heart here, as he does elsewhere. Gideon protests when the Lord asks him to save Israel. And he sounds a lot like Moses. He says, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's saying, I'm an insignificant person. I've never been a great person before. Look for someone else, basically. I'm not your guy. But the Lord's response here is a familiar one. He says, surely I will be with you. It's not about who you are. It's about who God is and what he has called you to. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. Just as God called Gideon to a task, so everyone in the church is called to a task. We all have a ministry from the Lord, something God has given us to do, something he's gifted us to do, all to serve to build up the body of Christ. So think about that. What is your gift? What has God given you to serve this church? How can you use that to build up this body and help build up this church into a holy temple in the Lord? If God has truly called you to a good work, just like he does Gideon here, he will supply you with every good thing you need to do it. And there is great reward in that if you're willing to step out in faith, just like Gideon does here. And the Lord delivers Israel through him, even though he's a nobody from nowhere, just like he says. You can be used mightily too, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done in the past, what kind of sins you might feel guilty about. Trust in Christ. If you are Christ, then the Lord is with you for every good work which he has called you to. And you can go forth in confidence to do those things, no matter who you are. Now, after Gideon's death, we see that Israel again plays the harlot immediately. It's this repeated pattern, as I've said. And we see things going from bad to worse. One of Gideon's own sons conspires and he kills all of his brothers except one on one stone because he wants to rule in their place. We see that another woman ends his life by dropping a millstone on his head from a tower and crushing his skull. 
Some parts of this book are hard to stomach, but this is what happens in this narrative. It's not a pretty story. That's the second skull that's crushed in this book, and I said we're watching this promise of a son who would crush the head of the serpent. These are evil men, evil kings, fully identified with that serpent of old, with the enemy of the church and the people of God. And so both of their skulls are crushed by these women. That promise will further develop throughout Scripture. We're progressing towards that final fulfillment of God's promise. But with Israel in this book, I said there's this pattern of rise and fall. And with each fall, the fall seems deeper. It's not just peaks and valleys, it's a downward spiral. They're circling the drain, basically, to put it bluntly. We see that even the judges, the leaders, have these warts. I mean, Gideon had some issues, but Jephthah, it gets uglier. He makes a rash vow that if the Lord will give him victory, he will sacrifice in fire the first thing he sees come out of the doors of his house when he returns home. Now, if you think about that, that's insane. You think, I live there, I've got a family. The first thing that comes out of my doors of my house, I'm going to sacrifice in fire to the Lord. Does that seem like a wise thing to do? No. That's crazy. And it gets even worse because he keeps his vow. His daughter comes out, and rather than saying, okay, I've sinned in making a rash vow, I've sinned, I take that back, he actually goes through with it. His daughter is the first thing to come out of his house, and he keeps his vow and sacrifices her in fire. Now, if you think that is terrible, that is what you are supposed to see in this story. What we're supposed to see here is that Israel is becoming no different than the nations around them. They're becoming what they were supposed to destroy. Deuteronomy 18 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Verse 12 says, Because of these detestable things, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. They're committing the very sins for which the Lord wants them to drive these people out of the land. They're becoming indiscernible from the nation's around them, just as the Lord had warned. Now then there's Samson, who's kind of a womanizer. He has his own issues. You wonder, if, is Samson a good guy or a, or a bad guy? You see some of both here. He loves foreign women. Israel was not to intermarry with the nations around them, but Samson doesn't care about that, it seems. They're not to marry foreigners lest they seduce them to sin. God is trying to preserve his people and keep them from sin. They're supposed to be a special people through whom the Messiah comes. They're supposed to be distinct. But Samson finds a Philistine woman, one of Israel's enemies, and the text says he wants her because literally the text says, she is right in my own eyes. He tells his parents, get her for me. His parents try to correct him. He says, get her for me. She is right in my own eyes. And that phrase becomes a 
refrain, a repeated refrain in the book. Pay attention to that phrase. This phrase shows up in chapter 14, verse 3, chapter 14, verse 7, chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, and chapter 21, verse 25, which is the last verse of the book. It puts a period at the end of the book. Israel is in a tailspin in the book of Judges. And the recurring summary of their plight in this book is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there's no king. Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. Now, as you might imagine, this is a recipe for disaster. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. You reap what you sow. And Israel does. We have to admit Israel is a house of horrors by the end of this book. It's like clown world in Israel. Everything's upside down. Nothing makes sense. There are many other details we could go through and see how distorted and dystopian things have gotten in Israel. They make idols. There are men anointing their own priests for their own household. And then in the lowest scene, probably in the book, the men of Benjamin, they come to their neighbor's house at night. Their neighbor has welcomed a stranger into his house to stay. The men of Benjamin come to his door and they bang on the door and they demand that their neighbor brings this guest out of his house that they may know him carnally. Now imagine that happening in our town. We think things are bad now. That's really bad. That's really bad. Never mind hospitality. Bring your guest out so we can abuse him. These men of Benjamin have become no different than Sodom in Genesis. A place which the Lord made a smoking crater. And even to this day, Sodom and Gomorrah are the lowest place on earth in the Dead Sea, in the Middle East. This is ugly. There's no king in Israel. Everyone is doing what's right in his own eyes. They've reached the lowest of the low. The message of this book is clear. There's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. They need a king. They've rejected the Lord as king. They need a king. And everyone cannot be doing whatever's right in his own eyes. They need to be doing what's right in the eyes of a king whom the Lord will give them. What was right in Israel's eyes, what was right in Samson's eyes, 
was not right in the eyes of the Lord. They were to do what was right in God's eyes, and they haven't. They have rejected his law. They've bowed down to idols. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, these things were written for our instruction. How do we apply these things to the church today? This thing of everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. It's not just a problem from back then. We should apply this to the church today. Now, we could talk about liberal mainline churches. We could talk about other churches. But let's talk about churches that consider themselves conservative and Bible-believing churches. Usually this error does not come in the form of openly rejecting God's word, but often it comes in the form of the Holy Spirit told me. The Holy Spirit told me. The Holy Spirit told me this passage means this. The Holy Spirit told me I should apply this passage this way in this situation. I prayed about it. I got this feeling. God told me this is what this means. This is what I should do. And oftentimes it's the complete opposite of what that passage actually means to teach. But they are convinced that the Holy Spirit told them that that's what that verse means, that this is what I should do based on that passage. Even if it's the complete opposite of what any credible teacher in church history has ever taught. The Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture will never tell you to do something that completely contradicts a sound understanding of Scripture. If there is a Spirit telling you to do something like that, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a different Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always give you reasons Sound reasons for believing. Sound arguments. The Spirit works in our hearts. The Spirit leads us into the truth. The Spirit will never lead us into the truth without giving us a reason for believing that truth. Protestant reformers made arguments. They showed that what they believed had a precedent in church history. They showed that what they believed, Augustine believed, Chrysostom believed, Jerome believed. Those guys didn't get everything right. Nobody's infallible in the church. But if we believe things that are completely novel, that we can't show that any credible teacher ever believed, we should pause and think, maybe we should rethink this. We need to remember that God made us to be rational animals, not emotional animals. Discerning between good and evil requires serious and rigorous study of Scripture. It requires learning from others who have gone before us, those faithful guides who help us understand, who give us sound arguments, We need reform in the Protestant church today. We need to recover what those reformers taught. We need to sit at their feet and learn from them, always with Scripture as our highest authority. 
but we need to look to these men as helpful guides. As in so many other things in society right now, it's not that we've studied the arguments of those who have come before us, who built our culture, who built our civilization, built our society. It's not that we've tried them and found them wanting. In our time, what we see is we're completely ignorant of what they taught. And we've just left them untried. Is there a king in the Protestant church today? Or are we all just doing what's right in our own eyes? Is it, I have my interpretation, you got your interpretation, he's got his interpretation, this guy's got his interpretation. There's no king in Israel, everyone just do what's right for you. We have to do better than that. We have to submit ourselves and apply our minds to Scripture to understand it well, understand it on its own terms. Now, whoever you are here today, Christ, that king of Israel, that king that Israel needed, he came and he bled and he died for you. He died on that cross at Calvary. He's the king that we're looking for going forward in Scripture. He's the king Israel needs. He's the king the church needs. So that they're not just doing whatever's right in their own eyes. He's the one who grants rest from our enemies, who gives us the inheritance, who gives us the whole world even as an inheritance by the blood of his cross. There's nothing that can separate you if you're in Christ from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our sins from us. But Christ's blood does not give us license to do whatever's right in our own eyes. We do not want to be like Israel. Christ's blood does not give us license to sin. It puts us under greater obligation to obey. Not in order to gain life, but because he's given us life, because he's given us such a great gift. If he's given you eternal life, if he bled and died for you, if you see that gift, if you see what a treasure that is, what he's saved you from, all your sins, then we should want to live for him who died for us and was raised. That is our motive in the Protestant church for living the Christian life. Because Christ is such a great Savior. We are great sinners, every one of us. And we sin every day, even after we come to believe. We fall far short of God's standards. And yet, if Christ died for us, then we should live for him. We should pursue perfection in him, though we know we will never reach it this side of glory. We do not obey to gain life. We do not obey for life. We obey from life. If Christ has made you alive, you can't fail to live good works, to produce good works more day by day, to look more and more like Christ who saved you. Not to gain life, but because he's given you life as a gift by faith and faith alone.
So church, look at that great judge, that judge greater than Samson, greater than Jephthah, a judge greater than all of these judges, one by one throughout this book. He does everything that they failed to do. He conquers all evil on the cross. And if you believe in him, his victory is yours. Believe in him. Repent. Go on to those good works. Leave that life of sin and death behind you. Walk in Christ. Walk in that victory he has already won for you by the cross. Receive Christ and eternal life in him by faith alone. See what Father's smiles are yours in the beloved Son. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless this word. We pray that every one of us would take this with us as we go today, that we would apply this to our lives, that we would see that Christ is our victory, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And let us follow him and abound in good works. pray all this in his name. Amen.